Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a wonderful show for you this evening. SR-71 Reconnaissance Systems Officer Phil Susi is here with us, and we're going to learn all about that aircraft, his background, and then we're going to talk a lot about the National Air and Space Museums, where he also spends time. So uh, just, just a wonderful show. Before we get started, just a few things. First of all, Social Flights Fly to Win Challenge is right now just roaring. We are giving away a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset on October 1st. We recently gave away an Aspen E5 electronic flight instrument. So we just keep giving things away and you need to be in it to win it, as they say. So be sure to get social the Social Flight mobile app for Apple or Android devices. Just look for one word, Social Flight, on the uh, app or Google Play Store and uh, download it. All you need to do is get that and then check in with the Fly to Win Challenge at your local airport. Even a single check-in gets you in in order to uh, be part of the drawing for that prize. If you check in at multiple airports and get more points and compete to be on the leaderboard, you get additional entries into that drawing. So tons and tons of cool things. And of course, socialflight.com allows us to support general aviation by bringing you tens of thousands of aviation events, destinations, all sorts of cool things to get you out there in flying. That's our mission, that's our goal, and uh, everything we can do to support that is, is wonderful. We appreciate it. We appreciate you spreading the word for that and supporting general aviation as well. Tonight's broadcast is brought to us by Whip Air with the Whip Line floats that you can see on caravans and all sorts of different aircraft. But what a lot of people don't know is that at their South St. Paul Airport uh, location, they also have a full services there of avionics and interior and paint and maintenance. They sell aircraft. Uh, Go check out their website at whipair.com. There is just so much going on there. And they are truly wonderful people, uh, a, a family-owned business. And I've been there. And if you ever get a chance to go there and tour, it's a wonderful opportunity to tour the factory and see what you've got going on there. It's very, very cool. Now, to tonight's program and our amazing guest. Phil Susi is a graduate of the United States Air Force Test Pilot School at Edwards Air Force Base, and he served 20 years with the Air Force in a wide range of operational and technology positions. As a rated navigator, he has over 2,000 hours of flight experience in over 30 different aircraft, ranging from the F-4 Phantom to the amazing Mach 3 Plus SR-71 Blackbird. Following his time with the Air Force, Phil co-founded Modern Technology Solutions, an aerospace engineering services company. One of his most fascinating positions more recently is as a docent at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. He provides tours covering a wide range of aviation and space subjects to adults as well as student school groups. Uh, so if you're visiting one of these amazing museums, you may be one of the lucky ones to have Phil as your guide. Phil's also an active GA pilot and CFI with commercial single and multi-engine pilot certificates. I'm absolutely thrilled to have him here with me tonight to share some stories and give us some insight into one of the fastest aircraft to ever speed through the sky. I'm gonna bring Phil on the line now. Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Phil Susie. How are you doing, Phil? I'm doing great, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to see you again. And I truly appreciated spending time with you out at Air Venture this year and at the gathering. It was a, a great time with both myself and Jake and Ben and and uh, was just just so, so cool to be there. So big thanks to you and everything you do within general aviation. Oh, I, I enjoy it very much and you're most welcome. I'd like to kick things off with a little background of what kind of what brought you into the Air Force. Uh, so many people, especially even uh, young people that are watching, 
uh, love to understand what is it that that brings some of these amazing people that come on the show that gets them started, especially if that's with the the armed forces. So tell me a little bit about how you landed with the Air Force and and then how uh, that translated into flying those amazing aircraft. Yeah. So I didn't grow up in a family that was aviation oriented. Um, in fact, I grew up in uh, northern Vermont, the northeast part of Vermont. There, um, aviation was there was some of it going on there, but there wasn't a huge airport near nearby. We didn't take summer trips where we flew somewhere. You know, it was the family car going to visit relatives and maybe Connecticut or something like that. Um, but when it was time to think about going to college, uh, this was I graduated from high school in 1969. So the Vietnam War was going on, so I wanted to give some some thought to you know what would be the best way to go as opposed to just throwing my uh, name in the hat or maybe not throwing my name in the hat but getting drafted right that was another option. So what might be a better way to go as opposed to just leave it to fate? So I I went to Norwich University, which is a private military school in Vermont. It wasn't too far from my home, about an hour and a half or so. Like I said, I didn't hadn't really traveled that far, you know, outside of New England. I hadn't really gone anywhere. I had never flown, been on an airplane. And I went to Norwich, and you had to be an Army ROTC. It was a private military school, Corps of Cadets, that whole uh, environment. Uh, and then my between my sophomore and junior year, the Air Force came on campus, and that just changed my life. I was an engineer, a mechanical engineering major. And uh, when I considered what the options might be being an engineer in the Army for some period of time or being an engineer in the Air Force, the Air Force sounded more, felt more appealing. And then there was this opportunity to maybe fly. And I initially started out on the path of, of uh, wanting to be a pilot, uh, desiring to be a pilot. But uh, partway through my, I guess it was probably my junior year, you know, so I signed up at the Air Force and probably between my junior and senior year, uh, I was no longer able to pass the eyesight exam. And back then you had to be 2020, and I started out being sort of borderline 2020, but uh, you know, as I got a few years into it, uh, I no longer could pass the eye exam. But about that same time, we went to ROTC summer camp. You know, if you're an ROTC, usually between your junior and senior year, or maybe some branches between your sophomore and junior year, you go to summer camp for a month or so. Uh, and the summer camp that I went to was down in Florida. It was at Tyndall Air Force Base. I'd never flown on an airplane. I got it. They gave me a ticket, a commercial airline. In fact, I should point out at Norwich University, there was, we graduated 200 plus in our class, and there was only, I think it was four or five of us that went in the Air Force. And so we were kind of viewed as traitors uh, doing that. <laughs> a school that had nearly, a, you know, at that time, probably 160 years of uh, Army history. And, Here's these guys going off considering the Air Force. But I went down to uh, Tyndall Air Force Base, and you know, you know, they tried to uh, give you some ideas of what some options might be out there. And I was still hoping maybe I could be a pilot, because being going in the Air Force, that still you know made sense. I didn't know much about flying, but it kind of made sense. Uh, but this issue was hanging over me about my eyesight. And when I was down there, uh, we went over to Eglin Air Force Base and they had F-4 Phantoms. And of course, the F-4 Phantom was the main fighter of that time, you know, the workhorse during Vietnam, uh, multi-role fighter. And uh, it's a two crewed airplanes, right? So it's a pilot and a weapons systems officer in the back. And uh, it was made aware to me that you didn't have to be a, didn't have to have 20 eyesight, 2020 eyesight to fly in the back seat. And that would be a way to be involved with aviation uh, without meeting the, uh, you know, the 2020 eyesight. And while I was down there, they gave us a flight in a C-54, and then we got a flight in a helicopter, but I got to fly in the back of a T-33. And, you know, my whole life changed after that. I mean, you know, here I am, so I was probably, I don't know, 20 years old, 19, I was probably 20 years old, you know, hey, here's your parachute, here's your helmet, uh, we're going to strap you in, don't touch anything, don't say anything, you know, <laughs> but it was just amazing. And we were a, we were a, uh, a target for aircraft, uh, F-102s and F-106s that were practicing intercepts. And I had my camera with me and I took pictures of these 106s that would pull up beside us or 102s that pull up beside us after the intercept run. And uh, when I got back home, I got those pictures developed and I must have bored everybody to tears, my aunts, my uncles. I mean, look at this, here's this, I was in this airplane, I had a helmet on, this and that, and I was just jazzed up. So my mission became to get you know, to graduate from uh, Norwich, go into the Air Force, 
go to navigator school. And at that time, everybody that, regardless of what you uh, were going to fly as a non-pilot, if you were going to be a, a rated officer, you went to navigator training. We did navigator training in T-29s, you know, propellers and sexes, and sort of learned to be sort of a World War II kind of navigator, which was kind of fun. But my goal was to go to the F-4. And they, I can't remember how many were in my class, but they gave out assignments based on where you were in the, in the, uh, in the stack there, you know, the number one guy might pick a, an F-4 or an F-111, and the number two person would pick this or that or whatever, and you worked your way down at the end, and, you know, the poor people at the end, nothing against the KC-135, love them, they do a great job, but that's where the navigators that were at the bottom of the class went. So, fortunately, I graduated high enough, and I was uh, uh, able to get an F-4 assignment and then went to uh, F-4RTU at Luke Air Force Base. And... Uh, so what went from a kid growing up in Northeast Vermont that had never been anywhere, so going to Air Force ROTC, going to summer camp, getting this little bit of taste of aviation and the excitement that goes with us and giving me a vector uh, just opened up my whole world. Wow. I, I have to say, growing up, the F-4 was one of my favorite aircraft. When you looked at the models and things like that, there were... There, there's just a, a small set of aircraft that that were really, really something. And that thing, it's so big, it's so powerful. Tell me a little bit about the about the plane and what yeah. it was like when you got when you got introduced to it. Yeah, no, it was wonderful. We saw it when I was at ROTC summer camp. Just to back up, we went to Eglin. They had F4s there. They said that was the primary fighter. And you know, we went out to the end of the runway at Mobile, where the uh, you know, the duty officer would be, and you know, making sure people put their gear down and did all those kind of things. And we're out there at the end of the runway and these airplanes would come out, you know, a four ship and they'd take off. And like you said, I mean, the noise and, uh, and the, you know, it shake your insides, you know, we're out there just off to the end of the runway. So I was really looking forward to getting a chance to fly in the airplane. Now I, I show up at the Luke Air Force Base um, with no flight experience, you know, other than that one T-33 flight, I didn't have a pilot license or anything like that. So now I'm going through F-4 RTU training. And so it was a whole new world for me, um, you know, learning to pull, you know, learning to deal with um, G-forces. Of course, I show up there um, in the summer in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. So it's, uh, you know, we fly early, but it's still 90 degrees, you know, at you know nine o'clock in the morning or what have you. So it was pretty exciting, and uh, you know, I I think I did pretty well at it. I loved it. I, I worked hard. I, you know, I wasn't at the top of my class, but I was a long ways from the bottom, and uh, you know, it was pretty exciting. The the training was six months there. You flew with uh, mostly with instructor pilots, but then you would also fly with some of the student pilots because uh, you know eventually you're going to land up with a real operational unit, and you're going to be crewed with somebody, and you're going to have to fly as a crew. So. Uh, it was very exciting. We had a little bit of, you know, air-to-air -air experience. We dropped the bombs, uh, uh, but it was mostly just getting used to the environment and getting used to what it would be like to work as a crew in an airplane. Yeah, that's that's really something. Uh, you know, there's a lot of a, a lot of people that have been on the show speak extraordinarily highly of WISOs and RSOs and what their experience and you know how important that position is and how they're the real judge. Uh, of the pilots, <laughs> they're the <laughs> honest judge. They, what do they call it, the Wizzo Club or the Wizzo Mafia? Yeah, or something. I mean, they, everybody kind of had a rating system for who you wanted to fly with or not fly with, what have <laughs> you. But, uh, you know, I, I was very fortunate to uh, start up my Air Force career uh, doing that. I, you know, I dealt with a little bit of air sickness at first. You know, uh, you know, you're you're in the back getting thrown around a little bit. It's kind of hot, whatever. But uh, you know, you kind of work your way through that. And I think most people can. Um, it wasn't, you know, wasn't terrible, but it, uh, you know, it was a little bit of a concern at first. I remember thinking, okay, you know, am I going to feel like, feel like crap every time I get out of the airplane here, or am I going to be able to work my way through it? And eventually, eventually you do. Most people do. Do, do backseaters also, uh, have the ability and, and the training to land the aircraft in the event, in, in the event of, of a pilot incapacitation? Uh, to some extent. So that wasn't part of the training. That wasn't a requirement. There was no, okay, you got to be able to learn or land the airplane from the back if the pilot is uh, incapacitated. But for the most part, when people got in operational units, they uh, learned to fly and they learned to fly well enough so that they could land the airplane in an in in emergency. And some people enjoyed that more. Um, 
In fact, some, some of the guys in the back, uh, some of my peers were probably not very good whistles, but were very good backseat pilots because that's all they wanted to do, you know. You know, hey, can I have the stick, you know? So they'd fly formation, they'd do whatever, they'd make the takeoff, they'd do whatever, because that's really what they wanted to do. But they didn't really do very well at the what their real job was. So I tried to focus on, on my real job and be just as good as I could at that. But I did enjoy flying, and, uh, you know, that gave me the bug to want to, uh, you know, get my general aviation uh, FAA licenses, right? So I, I learned to fly to some extent from the backseat of the F-4, and then um, on the side, through the aero clubs, whatever, got my got my private license and commercial and CFI and all that sort of stuff. Wow. Um, the uh, so what makes a good WISO or RSO? What is it? What's involved in in really really being quite good at that? Because we always hear about the glory going to the pilot. Yeah. No, well, I think rightfully so. That you know the pilot um, is the aircraft commander, right? We all know as pilot what that means, and that's the ultimate responsibility. But to be a good Wizzo, you really are, you know, obviously you're the number two person there and you're, you know, you know when to speak up, you know when to um, say, hey, this isn't right, we need to be doing that. You know, you know the systems in the airplane is good or better than the pilot. That maybe you don't know, maybe you don't have access to this knob in the back seat, but you know all about that system. Uh, every bit as good as the pilot. If you think, well, you know, we'll just let the pilot deal with that stuff, I don't need to worry about that you know, you're probably not, not being as good as you could because as people become in two-place airplanes, two-place fighters, the whistles as they get more ex experience will end up being crewed with the inexperienced pilots, right? And so, mm. you know, you've got a whistle maybe flying with a couple thousand hours in the back seat, flying with a pilot that's got 200 hours in the front seat, right? So the pilot and the whistle in the back can really be a huge help to the pilot, uh, the lesser experienced pilot if there's any sort of emergency, or helping to train that pilot. And I saw that, I had a, you know, maybe we'll talk about it a little later if we have time, but I had an exchange store with the Navy. And I, I saw quite a difference uh, with the Navy RIOs, radar intercept officers, you know, the, the gooses from Top Gun and the F-14, whatever, than what I saw in the Air Force. And one of the things I think that, and it wasn't that one was better than the other, other but there was a difference. I got to experience both. And the F-4, the Navy F-4s did not have flight controls in the back. You could not fly the airplane from the back at all. And so right from the beginning, the the, uh, the Rios had to know how to deal with the airplane without never having flown it, ever had their hands on the stick and throttle. And, uh, and also that set up for the pilots a different situation than what I saw in the Air Force. So if you had a pilot in the F-4 that maybe was struggling or maybe going through initial training, need a little bit of extra help, they would take the whistle out and put an instructor pilot back there, right? Kind of makes sense. In the Navy community, I was an instructor in the Navy RTU, uh, my third, uh, I guess my third operate, my third assignment, the F-4. Uh, they didn't do that, you know, because the pilot said, that's not, you know, there's no controls back there, what can I do? And the, and the Rios learned to be very, very good at instructing from the back seat. I mean, it was just amazing to me. I could hear these guys. I'd listen to their tapes as I was trying to get up to speed and, you know, learn about, you know, what was involved for the pilot landing in the aircraft carrier. And these guys that had never, ever flown the airplane could could talk to the pilot and, you know, right for lineup, nose up, little nose, power, power. Okay. I mean, they they, they knew what the picture looked like and knew exactly when to speak up, uh, if there was going to be a problem and how to coach that uh, pilot through it. And that didn't exist in the uh, in the Air Force situation because if a pilot was struggling, they would put an IP with them and there would be check rides and, and that sort of stuff. So while I'm sure the Navy guys probably said, oh, I wish we had flight controls back there, in some ways maybe it was a little bit of, you know, detriment to that career field. And mm. I saw in the Navy, they also, um, things changed in the Air Force. When I was uh, in the Air Force as a WISO, as a NAV, there were less command opportunities of flying uh, of um, flying squadrons. You know, they're very, very limited. That since has changed. But um, in the Navy, they always, um, you know, when I got to the RTU squadron, and when I first was there, our skipper was a Rio, and his XO was a pilot, and the next day swapped around. It was I didn't see that in the Air Force. So there was, a, I think, a higher expectation for the Navy Rios than I saw with the uh, with the Air Force. As an example, when I was an instructor in F-4s with the Navy, 
we washed uh, Rios out of RTU if they struggled, you know, you know, given appropriate help, whatever. I never saw that happen in the Air Force. It was always like, well, the guy's not going to kill anybody because, you know, you know. But there was a there was a requirement for the Rios to be really good, and the, and the Navy put a premium on that, and they washed people out. And not that there was a huge difference, let's say, in the in the quality between the two services, but it was interesting to to um, experience both sides, both sides. Wow. So tell me a little bit about your progression and what got you introduced to the SR-71 program? Yeah, so I uh, I flew the F-4. I, I went to, it was in a wild weasel squadron flying F-4Cs in Okinawa, Japan. Then I went to the fighter weapons school at Nellis, you know, the Air Force is uh, equivalent to Top Gun. Everybody knows that it it's Top Gun in the Navy, but the fighter weapons school at Nellis and the F-4. And then I went back to I went back to the Pacific at Clark Air Force Base flying the F-4Es. And then after that, I went to the Navy uh, Navy Exchange Tour. So I was there on that Navy Exchange Tour and thinking I'm going to continue flying airplanes as a you know F-4 WSO. I'm going to go back to the Air Force. I'm going to take back all these great lessons I learned from the Navy back to the Air Force. And, you know, that's why we do that, those things, right? But uh, because I had an engineering degree, uh, for whatever reason, uh, there was a shortage of engineers in the Air Force. And the Air Force could see that while the F-4 was still the, the predominant fighter, you know, thousands of them, a couple thousand of them in the Air Force, uh, at some point they were going to be phased out, replaced by the F-16, single-seat F-16, single-seat F-15s, right? The F-15E was just an idea at that point. It hadn't really uh, come along. So the personnel folks said, oh, you've got an engineering degree. We're going to make you an engineer. And I thought, what's this about? I didn't sign up for any of this. I mean, I have a degree in engineering, but I haven't done anything with it. And uh, so my whole world got sort of turned upside down. And fortunately, the personnel folks were looking out for me and thought maybe I was getting the short end of the stick here. And, and I landed up uh, being assigned to a um, special project where we were uh, flight testing some of the newest airplanes going on, right? So I um, was an engineer and I got assigned to this uh, organization. I was living in Las Vegas. I got to saw the uh, F-117 fly at its first flight. There was a number wow. of other classified programs that uh, were going on at that time, uh, some of which have been made public, some of which have not. And I showed up just at the right time there with no engineer experience, but I had this flight experience. And so my flying at that point became support flying. It became chase aircraft, photography, you know, along for the ride, so to speak. But it was engineering where, you know, mission control, being in the control room, uh, writing test plans, analyzing data. And so I kind of had the best of both worlds. I was continuing to fly and I was get, and I had the opportunity to become very, very involved with some of these um, very important classified programs. They were, the uh, organizations were um, not manned very heavily. Everybody was working hard, long hours. We, you know, we'd go to work on Monday, come home on Thursday or Friday, what have you. And, uh, it was pretty intense, and uh, you know, I really, really lucked out with that. And so while I was there, that I became obvious to me that the way to progress in that uh, in that career field um, was to go to the test pilot school. And I raised my hand, and you know, some of the folks uh, wrote letters of recommendation for me. I was able to get to the test pilot school. That was in 1983, so that was 10 years after I had come into the Air Force. So now I've got some, you know, operational experience. I've got a little bit of engineering experience now for a, a couple of years, a year and a half or so, and I went to the test pilot school. So the test pilot school, sometimes just to explain just a little bit for folks, um, is made up of, you know, the test pilot school class is made up of pilots, uh, whizzos or navigators, and engineers, people that aren't rated officers because the test community involves those professions that are doing flight tests. Yeah, but if it's a single seat airplane, the pilot flying the airplane, but there's engineers that are there in the control room, um, you know, getting the pilot to move over to the next uh, test point, looking at the data to make sure that the test point was properly flown, or writing the test plans, debriefing the pilots, working as a team. So the test pilot school teaches that. And of course, being a WSO, you know, you're looking for opportunities where you can fly where you would actually uh, do flight tests in a flying role as opposed to just in a pure engineering role. So 
So when I graduated from the test file school in December of 83, I went back to that same organization that I was at before, got involved with running a, a very interesting classified program where we were doing flight tests. And uh, I was very fortunate to get involved very early on with things where the Air Force was focusing on, and the DOD was focusing on stealth technology, right? What does this mean? How, how much is good enough? How do you evaluate it? You know, the designers can design something. You can maybe test it on the ground at a, at a range with radars or what have you. But now when you're in the air, does it really perform? You know, with flight controls moving around with gaps and cracks from gear doors and, you know, a pilot in the cockpit, does it really, you know, does it have the right signature? How does it perform against, you know, as close as you can get to uh, real threats? And that's the part that I got involved with. You know, and there was only two or three of us at the time that were involved with that. We didn't know what we were doing. Like most things, you just kind of, you know, make it up as you go along. And we learned from each other. And it was an exciting time to actually uh, be involved with that. And like I said, I saw the F-117 fly in its first flight. But my role was more in evaluating, does it have the right signature? Uh, how does it perform against uh, threat systems? If we, if we expected it, let's say a regular airplane would be detected at 50 miles by an airborne radar, and now we're predicting it's going to be detected at five miles, let's say, which is a big difference. You have to go out and test that, make sure it's not being detected at 25 miles or 20 miles. And how, do, how well does it match your model? Yeah, your, your prediction, like anything in flight test. So I um, went back doing that stuff, and then an opportunity came up to, um, there was a position down at Palmdale, California, uh, working uh, at Air Force Plant 42. It's a, a government facility that was pretty much run by Lockheed, uh, where they did overhaul on the SR-71, you know, uh, program depot uh, work, PDM it was called, where they strip the airplanes all down, put them all back together, and then somebody has to fly them to make sure everything's working right. And then we also had a test airplane. It was tail number 972, which that's the one we have at Udvar-Hazy out at the museum. We'll talk about that later. But uh, we had a test airplane that was instrumented, and we um, tested new radars. We tested electronic warfare equipment, uh, new jamming equipment. Oh, there we are. So <laughs> new jamming equipment. That's tail number 972 out at Palmdale Air Force Plant 42. And, uh, you know, it's an exciting time. So now I'm working not just as an engineer on a very neat program, and the SR had been around for a while. So the airplane first flew in 1964, and now we're talking 1985, somewhere you know, around that time frame. Um, so it had been around for a while, but, you know, the airplane, like any airplane, is uh, not just the airplanes coming out of the uh, depot that had to be tested before we delivered them up at Beal to the operational unit, but they were de developing a, a new advanced synthetic aperture radar so that you could get imagery and collect intelligence information through the weather or at night, not just cameras. And then we had, while there weren't a lot of threats that the SR-71 had to worry about, there were a few uh, surface-to-air missile systems. So we had new jamming equipment we were testing. And then the system, then the airplane was also, uh, we had gone from a, an analog flight control system. And it, the SR-71, after my first flight, and the SR-71 on that one, and so, uh, and so, you know, there was an analog flight control system that was the stability augmentation system for the airplane. It controlled the inlets, which was very important. It was the autopilot for the airplane, and we went from a analog system to a digital system. So that was uh, um, something we were testing as well. So it was it was pretty exciting. We had our own test aircraft. We had our own T-38 also. And I, I should point out there was only four of us. There was four crew members, two pilots and uh, two uh, RSOs. And two of the pilots, uh, I mean, one pilot, one RSO came from the operational community. They had, you know, extensive experience flying the airplane operational. And then one pilot, one RSO, that was me, uh, came from the flight test community. We had been to the test pilot school. We, under, we had engineering degrees. We, you know, had been trained in the principles of flight test and uh, what was involved with that. So it was a wonderful time to learn about how the airplane was being employed. I did make a trip over to uh, Mildenhall, England, which is one of the places that the airplane was being operated out of, um, and got to experience what they uh, did over there. I was trained by the, uh, in the same way that all the other crew members were trained up at Beale in the simulator and doing all those kind of things. So, you know, thought I died and gone to heaven. So, you know, here's this kid who's <laughs> a lot. 
that uh, had never flown in an airplane, 20 years old, goes to Florida and says, wow, this is kind of cool. And now all of a sudden I'm flying the SR-71. And I flew the airplane for about two and a half years. Not, you know, I don't have a whole career doing it, but I was very fortunate to do it. In the flight test we were doing, um, you know, the airplane was designed to go very high and very fast. And we pretty much did that on every single mission. I mean, it went, you know, 3.2, and we did that on every mission, almost every mission. And it went to 80 to 85,000 feet. We did that on every mission because wow. the things we were testing had to be tested at the essentially the limits limits of the airplane. Yeah, Mach 3.2, and and what would you say, 82,000 or 85,000? 85,000 is the surface ceiling. So you know, we we start a cruise climb in the you know low to mid 70s, and as you burn off fuel, you you know you get up into the, the you know maybe 85,000 feet, depending on the mission profile you're flying. Wow. Tell me a little bit about, especially since we're, we're focused on, on stealth technology. You mentioned the F-117, and, and uh, Thad Dagger has been on the show, who also, uh, 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 Dagger, who, who, who yeah. was a pilot of that, and an amazing human being. And there's such different planes. Um, when you look at it, I'm just talking about the design, just the idea that one is completely faceted and another is very smooth in its curves. And when we think of things like the the B2 or the B1, they're they're also very smooth. What's that? What's the concepts uh, that are, are so yeah. radically different? So the um, you know the F117 became the first operational stealth aircraft, right? Stealth fighter, the first one. And before that, there was a program called Hab Blue, which was the predecessor to the F-117. There was two of those aircraft built. They were tested. Think of it as a concept design. The folks at the Lockheed Skunk Works came up with an idea. And back then, the computational capability to predict the signature, the capability computationally, computer-wise, wasn't there to have the fidelity that was necessary to do something that was smooth and curved like that. But doing flat plates, mathematically was easier to model and predict. And, um, you know, I mentioned we were talking the other day, um, Dennis Oberholzer, a good friend of mine, uh, was at Lockheed at that time, and he is the designer of the F-117 from a signature standpoint. Obviously, Ben Rich was heavily involved, what have you, but when it comes to the signature, it's a gentleman named Dennis Oberholzer who had the um, insight to pick up on some work that was done by the uh, Soviet scientist Peter Euphrensen. I can never pronounce his name properly, but Peter Euphrensen had written a paper about how you calculate the radar cross-section of faceted, uh, faceted objects. And the, that paper that Dennis understood was then turned into something that became half blue and then, then became the F-117. But now the computational capability and the understanding of the technology, you know, allowed us to get to the B2. And now what you see with the F22 and the F35, you know, the technology is advanced enough that um, we really can can make an airplane that doesn't have to have the trade-offs that the F117 did. The F117 was how do we make it stealthy, and then everything else we'll figure out as best we can to make it work. Whereas the F22 and the F35 are you know, phenomenal aircraft in their own right. And oh, by the way, they're very, very, very capable from a stealth technology standpoint. But we couldn't yeah. do that starting out. When we had a, a very unique opportunity to be up close with the 35 and, and it is shocking to me, the gaps, uh, how tight that airplane is. That when you go to the slats and the control surfaces, you can barely tell where they move. It's, it's really, really impressive. Yeah. And when you think about it, when radar energy hits a surface, as I do with my hands here, and as it travels over the surface, if it hits a gap or a crack, that will radiate just like an antenna. I mean, just by itself, that gap or crack. So you need to have it so that it travels over in such a way that it'll dissipate, and there's techniques that are used to dissipate the energy when it gets to the trailing edge, depending on the frequency and the polarization and these kind of things. It's just fascinating fascinating stuff, but I was very fortunate to be there, not at day one, not when Hab Blue was flying. Both those airplanes were lost in accidents, but uh, I was there at the beginning of the F-117, and then later in my career, I was in the Pentagon when the F-117 was employed in Baghdad, and um, I knew exactly how the airplane would perform. Now, those that were sitting in the airplane flying into downtown Baghdad that night were probably hoping it was going to 
perform what they had been told. And we had, uh, we had developed mission planning books and the data to properly plan the missions. We had been up to the operational units and trained them in the early years about here's what this thing is and here's what it isn't, right? Mm-hmm. When the people think these are invisible airplanes, that's not the case. You know, anything will be detected at some point. The question is, can somebody do something about it in a timely manner to, uh, to affect the kill? So the SR, so the SR-71 Waltz swooping lines and kind of like smooth, it really, even though it, it looks a lot like something like, let's say, a B-1 in a way, or the, the kind of these, these lines. So it, it sounds like that was more about its design for a, it, being able to fly at that altitude, being able to do the performance that it did. Uh, yeah, that as, was the primary driver. But if you look at the history, and I've, I've talked to some folks at Lockheed about this, and you can find some reports out there that there were pretty significant attempts to reduce the radar cross-section of the SR-71. And if you look at the leading edges of the wing, there's these pie plate shapes in there that'll, that were set up such that radar would enter and then bounce around inside you know, the leading edge. They were, they were transparent to radar would bounce around inside there, and then by the time it came out, it would be dissipated some. If you look at the way the tails are canted also, for aerodynamic reasons, that made sense, but they were canted also for, it helped with the, with the uh, radar energy being de- detected. There is radar, there was radar absorptive material on the aircraft also, and so, and there was a pole model built, uh, you know, that people may or may not be aware of, but before the SR-71, there was an aircraft, the A-12, which uh, flew two years before the SR-71. It was operated by the CIA. There was only a handful of operational missions flown. It was a single-seat aircraft, only had cameras. But there was a, a I used the term pole model, which is a, a non-flyable aircraft that is representative of the, of the cross-section that was built of the radar cross section was built and measured, so they were working on um, on what the uh, you know how how to reduce the signature of the aircraft. And I know from testing that we did while I was at Palmdale, the radar cross section of the Esther 71 is that of a small fighter, even though it is a big looking airplane. So think of a cross section like a T-38 or a small fighter like a small trainer aircraft like that. This large aircraft has that kind of uh, signature at certain frequencies. Yeah. What's this really small aircraft doing over Mach 3 at 85,000 feet? <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit of electronic warfare, and that's what, what made it all work. So the primary driver for survivability was speed and altitude, reduce the radar cross-section, so they have a little bit less time to deal with it, maybe only 10% less, 20% less, whatever, and then throw in some electronic warfare where you're not quite uh, you know, going to be invincible. And it made for a extremely survivable aircraft. All those things together, just just amazing. So tell me a little bit. There's the the things that people think about, I think, or are kind of most commonly told about the airplane have to do with the 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 heat dissipation, how far it, how it grows in flight, um, you know, fuel leaking and special fuel because of all that stuff of how this plane has to change in flight. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so the average surface temperature of the airplane is 600 degrees. The average, there's certain parts that are, that's the skin of the airplane. Uh, there's some parts that are like 1,100 degrees that are you know, back there by the afterburner. And I should point out this airplane obviously takes off an afterburner and um, after coming off the tanker, it climbs an afterburner and it cruises an afterburner for like an hour at a time. So it's operating the afterburner, not just to go for some dash speed, but for operating and for cruising. And so um, with a 600 degree uh, surface temperature, even though it's like minus 67 degrees outside, it's quite cold at those altitudes, um, the surface temperature is hot. So the over 90% of the airplane is made out of titanium. Uh, titanium is, you know, a very, uh, it can handle the heat and retain its strength, whereas aluminum skin wouldn't wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, a lot of the structure is titanium as well. They use fuel for cooling the airplane, so they came up with a special fuel. The SR-71 was the only airplane that used that fuel. It had a very high flash point. Using standard jet fuel like other aircraft use um, wasn't going to work because of the high elevated temperatures, so they had a, a special fuel uh, special fuel for that. Um, 
it was kind of interesting that fuel had such a high flash point you couldn't ignite it with a standard igniter like you have in a jet engine you know a, a jet engine starts by getting it motored over by a motor or air or what have you and then putting fuel to it and then with an igniter plug igniting the fuel and then it's self-sustaining as long as you keep the fuel to it and air um, but you couldn't ignite the uh, fuel with an igniter plug so it used a special chemical called tab triethylborane I think the pilot had 14 shots at tab for each engine. Uh, you would have to use it for engine start. You'd have to use it for igniting the app, for starting the app, lighting the afterburner, or if you had a flame out. And tab was a very dangerous chemical. It ignited on contact with air. And so wow. it was in a tank way in the back. The fuel was just as safe as could be, but the tab was not. And when they came to fuel the airplane, nobody, I wouldn't say they didn't sweat it, but uh, it was a pretty nonchalant kind of uh, thing, but when they came to fuel the TED tank, they had the hazmat stuff on, the fire truck standing by, because if there was a leak, that stuff ignited with uh, air. And, and when you started the engine, when the pilot gave it a shot of TED, you know, you know, give it fuel or shot of TED, there was this boom, you could feel it. Then the engine, in this pictures, you can see a flame coming out of the back when the thing uh, lit off. So, all these inventions had to go into designing the uh, airplane and the, dealing with the heat and the temperature um, was a biggie. And by having a fuel that had a high flash point, they could use the fuel to fuel certain um, avionics bays or certain components in the uh, aircraft. Just like you use water in your radiator to cool your engine, you could use fuel and you could get the fuel to an elevated temperature, send it to the engine, burn it, and out it goes. Pretty slick when you think about it. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty wild to wrap the fuel. Numerous inventions, numerous inventions that they had to come up with for the airplane. It's just remarkable what they did. And and so is it true the that it was kind of leaky before when it was cold? Yeah, when it's on the ground, the airplane leak fuel. Yes, and so you've got. Um, so when the airplanes came in for overhaul, they one of the things they would do is they would. They had a couple of small statured individuals who would crawl into these fuel tanks. In fact, the whole fuselage, about, I don't know, three feet or so aft of the uh, RSO cockpit, um, after what's called the astro navigation system, all the way back behind there is fuel. And then inside the wings. And so the fuel tanks would be scraped out, the sealant would be cleaned out, because what happened is, is the airplane got hot and then cooled down, got hot, and cooled down. It was just like that uh, caulking material in your bathroom that never seems to last the, the 10 years on the tube or whatever that it says it's going to, and the airplane would leak fuel. When they came out of overhaul, it was they were pretty tight. There'd be a little bit of leak sometimes, but after, you know, several months of operation with that cycling of heat, whatever, the airplane would leak fuel. And I don't just mean a drop or two. I mean, there'd be, you know, puddles of fuel underneath the airplane. And there was a, in the manual, there was a, you know, so many drips per minute, so much, so flow, a certain flow rate that was tolerable. If it didn't meet that, they had to do something to go in and fix it. But yeah. Wow. That's, that's pretty wild. Uh, talk to me a little I bit about. My, came, my, my parents came out when I was at Palmdale and it was always, you know, fun to have a family member or a guest come out and, uh, you know, watch the airplane, right? So you suit up and you go out, you get in the airplane and it takes off and makes a lot of noise and big afterburner. And, you know, you have your friends or family stand at the end of the runway, and you know it's it's pretty exciting. I, I always enjoy doing it, but I forgot to tell my mother that uh, uh, that there's going to be this fuel on the ground. It's going to smell like kerosene, and uh, she was quite concerned. Uh, you know, when she get out there, there's all this fuel, and you can smell it. Is it? You know, does anybody know this thing is leaking? Whatever. So uh, I should have told her that. <laughs> it's normal, mom. Don't worry about it. Um, tell me a little bit about the the forward and the, the the cockpit, both in front and also for the RSO. This looks mind-boggling. Yeah, up front there's a lot of uh, a lot of things that you don't. Now it's an old airplane, so that's why you know it's round dials and and it's kind of remarkable. There was very little done to change the cockpit from the uh, initial design of the airplane. There was a a laser. Artificial horizon that was put in, and actually we flight tested at Palmdale that went out to the fleet. But it's a uh, you know round dials like you see there. So there are um, at this scale, it's a little too hard for me to point out various things. But one of a lot of what uh, 
the extra dials and, and uh, knobs, etc., are for controlling the inlet. So the inlet moves back 26 inches as a function of Mach number. I think it starts at Mach 1.5, if I recall right. I may have that wrong. And it starts moving back 26 inches so, such that at Mach 3 or 3.2, it's all the way back. And what that does is that sets up a series of shock waves. Uh, there's one that comes right off the tip of the inlet, and then it, it uh, just touches the outside of the inlet. It comes right off the, the tip of the cone, I should say, and it just touches the outside of the inlet, and it's called an oblique shock wave. And then there's another series of oblique shock waves inside the inlet, and then there's finally something called a normal shock wave. And what those shock waves do is they slow down the air and they compress it. Because a jet engine can't take supersonic air, it has to be slowed down, it has to be compressed. And so those gauges over on the right side are for spike positioning. There's forward bypass doors and there's half bypass doors that are, for the most part, all controlled automatically by what was initially an analog computer and later was changed to a digital computer. And you've probably heard people talk about unstarts, and that's when that shockwave gets spit out. And now you're trying to cram supersonic air into the inlet. The engine doesn't like it. You get this asymmetrical thrust, engines are further out, you had an unstart on one side. First of all, you get this big bang, and it really is frightening, just like somebody took a sledgehammer beside the cockpit. And then you've got this asymmetric thrust, it yaws the airplane, the nose pitches up, and if the airplane isn't handled properly, you could have loss of control. And during the early days, some of the, there were airplanes that were lost due to these, uh, due to these uh, unstarts. But with the digital system, it did very, very well, and the pilot can actually control that manually if there's a, can control the uh, position of the spike and the forward bypass doors and the app bypass doors if that's needed. So that's why, you know, even you can control the EGT for the engine. You know, when you have a fighter, they would take the engine to the engine test stand and they would tune it up, so to speak, and adjust the exhaust gas temperature. The pilot had the opportunity to tune that inside the uh, inside the airplane during flight. So there was a lot of controls that you wouldn't have um, in a normal airplane that wasn't operating in these kind of kind of conditions. So the pilot had his hands full, mostly monitoring these things. But if things weren't working right, then he needed to take over and uh, and uh, and control it himself. Wow. Now, obviously, when you're going over Mach three, there's a, a lot happening. Uh, the all I assume RSO is doing all the navigation and all the surveillance. Yes, yeah, so the um, the airplane can't be flown single speed. I mean, I guess technically it could subsonic if you need to go from here to there, but the navigation system is in the back. Um, so the the um, RSO in the back does the talking on the radios, controls the navigation system, uh, which was a remarkable system. The Astro navigation system. It was a inertial navigation system. People are probably familiar with an inertial navigation system, but it's a, a box that has gyros in it on all three axes. So think of spinning wheels. And so that allows the platform to remain rigid. So if the airplane banks or pitches up or yaws or whatever, the box knows up and down, it's keeping the box rigid. So you tell it where it is in latitude and longitude. Uh, and then it has sensors on it, accelerometers that measure the acceleration. It does something called integration, works it backwards to get velocity and then gets position. And so if you tell it where it is and then it senses how you've moved, it knows where you are. But inertial navigation system drifts with time. So the SR-71 navigation system was called an astro navigation system, an ANS that was made by Northrop. Um, this is before they were Northrop Grumman, but it's made by Northrop. I think out of Chicago. Anyway, um, it had uh, behind the RSO cockpit is where the navigation system is, and there's a glass window behind the cockpit, and there's a telescope that looks through that glass window, and that telescope tracks the stars. And it does just like a mariner would do at sea with a sextant, getting a line of position off a star, another star, another star, where those lines cross is where you are. And that's what bounds the errors on the on the inertial navigation system so that it doesn't drift because mm. the inertial navigation system that is not updated or not bounded will drift maybe during the, during this time frame maybe three miles an hour so 
you know, after an hour, you're three miles off. That wasn't going to be good enough for the the uh, sensors to come on and off at the right spot. And what was remarkable is this astro-navigation system would track the stars even in the day. Wow. So they're out, they're out there during the day. You can't see them, but the system could sense them and see them. Wow, that's impressive. And then how do you communicate to the pilot where you where to go? So just like any other airplane, you know, the pilot has uh, steering bars and, you know, needles up front, just like you would, you know, picture that if you had a, a GPS system with a, the G1000 or whatever, and the, the pilot maybe didn't have access to it, but all he's got is, uh, is uh, a bearing pointer, needles, whatever, and a, a DME countdown, what have you. So all of that is, uh, so the, the training was such that you would count down to the waypoints. Uh, you had a turn radius that was, you know, it was like a 30 mile turn radius. It took like 70 miles to get turned all around. Uh, I mean, you didn't do, there was no 90 degree bank turns. There was no high G turns. Um, you know, I think that we, normally the turns were, were planned and I want to say 32 degrees. In some cases, it could be a little bit higher. The limits were about 45 degrees of bank at, uh, at, uh, at Mach number. So it was, uh, you know, to the pilot, it was, it was pretty easy. He just had a set of commands. He's flying the commands. So the RSO would count down where you're going. We also had a backup inertial navigation system, another INS back there that wasn't an astro system. Of course, in the States, you had tank in and all those kind of things for, you know, normal um, communications very, very, uh, via uh, radios. We had something called a video view site also that was kind of interesting. It, um, we tested at Palmdale and went out to the fleet, but it was actually a camera to look down through the bottom of the airplane, a digital camera, uh, electro-optical camera, and you could update the inertial navigation system off of that. So on your planned mission, there would be maybe a, be a bridge that crossed a, a river and, uh, you know, you could update off of that and it would make sure that the, the inertial navigation system and the, the inertial, the astro navigation system was advertised, I think, to have 330 feet of accuracy, which today doesn't sound like very good in, in today's uh, GPS world. But back then, that was pretty good. And the system generally did better than that. But that was kind of the, the limit on, as I recall, 330 feet. Wow. Any exciting moments uh, uh, during any of your flights with it? Yeah, I didn't fly the airplane operationally. I didn't have to deport it. I didn't have to, I wasn't flying along. You know, I knew guys that were flying along the, uh, the Barents up there, you know, in the Arctic region that had to divert into Bodo, Norway and places like that that would have been uh, pretty exciting. But we, you know, we had our, our share of emergencies and unstarts because we were, you know, testing the airplanes, the ones that were coming out of overhaul, maybe something wasn't quite right with whatever. So, uh, you know, we had we had our share of uh, generators falling off the line, or you know, engines overtemping, or things like that that uh, you know you had to deal with. But nothing that I did have one flight that um, was um, I wouldn't call it exciting, but it uh, it was it was kind of uh, interesting. We had we had to go to uh, Mildenhall to pick up an airplane and bring it back to Palmdale. It had unfortunately been overgeed. Um, and, you know, the pilot had, uh, it was actually, they were doing a, a small air show, uh, some flybys, whatever, as part of a authorized air show. And um, the pilot landed up over Gene the airplane. He wrote it up and, uh, you know, I can't remember what the limit was, subsonic, maybe four Gs, four and a half. It wasn't anything uh, outstanding, but uh, it got written up and um, they did the inspection. They didn't see anything wrong with it. And when they came to uh, refuel the airplane, it wasn't just a little bit of fuel that was leaking out, it was just gushing out. And there had been some major structural components that had been broken in the airplane. So they got the Lockheed team over there to figure out what was um, what to do with it and how to get it fixed. They decided they couldn't fix it over there in England, at Mildenhall, England. They had to bring it back to Palmdale. Um, and we got a one-time permit to bring the airplane back. Um, and they put some, uh, I don't know, it was, uh, they didn't pop rivet in some braces or something, but they did something to try to check it up or they thought it was going to be a problem and they did some analysis. But I remember in the debrief, they said, and they limited the airplane to Mach 2.8 because as things get hotter, of course, structure isn't going to be as strong. The material's not going to be as strong. So we were limited to Mach 2.8, flying it back from uh, Milton Hall to uh, Palmdale, California. Uh, and in the briefing, they said, okay, this should be just fine. But the area we're less certain of is as you're going down the runway, when the nose comes up, just as you start to rotate, 
that's the highest stress on the airplane for this whole flight profile. And if there's a problem, that's when it's going to break in half. Oh, God. 200, <laughs> at 200 miles an hour, as the nose is coming up, that's where the problem is going to be. So I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And so I will say that it was pretty quiet as we were rolling down the runway. We were both were, you know, paying particular attention to anything that seemed uh, abnormal, but it was all just fine. And the engineers had done their work, work but uh, it was nice they told us that at least, that that was where the problem was going to occur if there was going to be a problem. If there was no problem then, you're good. It was going to be no problem at all. <laughs> Just so you know, if the airplane's going to break in half, here's where it's going to happen. <laughs> if you get through that, you're okay. <laughs> and that airplane so, never flew again. That airplane never flew again. They brought it back, and uh, it was going to be too much work to repair it. So we had the last flight of that airplane. I can't recall the tail number. I have it in my notes somewhere. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the the museums. This is this this is the plane that you've been. You bet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm very fortunate to work as a um, as a volunteer uh, at the Air and Space Museum. So I live in uh, Northern Virginia. I've retired from the military. I started an engineering services firm. I, I've enjoyed doing that. I'm still involved with the company uh, as the chairman of the board. The company's doing well. They don't need me there every day. Uh, so I get to spend time doing what I want to do. And one of the things that I really enjoy is volunteering at the Air and Space Museum as a, do as a docent there. And they have a wonderful, I guess I've been doing it for about 12 years now. It was something as I was getting ready towards retirement, trying to find out what I would spend my time on. And uh, the Air and Space Museum is just a wonderful museum. The training was just fabulous. And uh, we had the training was to be a docent there. And the docent corps is not just people that that flew a particular airplane there or were in the military. We have uh, retired airline pilots, we have retired teachers, we have people that love history, we have just a whole range of just wonderful people, but the common thing is they all love aviation and they love sharing what they know about aviation and they love continually learning more about aviation. And so the training that we all went through, it was, um, six months of every other Saturday. So I think that worked out to be 12 Saturdays, 12 or 13 Saturdays all day. And so, you know, you start out, I, I was a pilot, you know, a general aviation pilot. So I knew some things about pilot. I'd been in the military as a, as a WISO, RSO, flown some interesting airplanes. But you realize that there's a lot of things about aviation you don't know anything about. Lighter than air, hot air balloons, right? Dirigibles, blimps. Uh, sailplanes, right? Just it goes on and on and on. Uh, you know, air and space museum, right? Spacecraft, early uh, space flight. <coughs> and so the training was wonderful, and we uh, continue to have monthly training. And uh, I was out there today uh, in Udvarhazi, and so the uh, there's I, I should point out the air and space museum for those that aren't familiar is in Washington D.C of the Smithsonian system. The, uh, it's one museum with two locations. <coughs> a little water, excuse me. <coughs> There's the one down on the National Mall that was in the previous picture there. Uh, that's undergoing a renovation, that one there. In fact, it looks quite a bit different today than that picture there uh, because they have uh, done some resurfacing on the outside. Half the museum, about half the museum is currently closed the other half that is open has been totally revitalized and it opened in November and it is just spectacular. So the, the Wright Brothers airplane, the Wright Flyers there, the gallery on early aviation, uh, you know, has the 1909 Wright Flyer in it. And I'll point out that one of the, there's a lot of wonderful uh, aviation museums in the United States or in the world, but what makes the Smithsonian really uh, special is we have some of the only or the record centers, or one of a kind, and it just makes it a special place. And so, you know, having the Wright Flyer down there and telling the story about the Wright brothers and what they did. Um, and downtown, we have a, at the National Mall building, uh, before I talk about Uvarhazi, where I spend most where I spend most of my volunteer time, for general aviation pilots, they opened a new gallery this fall called We All Fly. And it is exclusively focused on general aviation. We have uh, Alan Klapmeyer's SR-22 in there. 
and it mm -hmm. tells the story about you know the transformation that Cirrus made to composite airplanes, glass cockpits. You know, we've all seen that, or we've lived it, or we're aware of it. But down at the Air and Space Museum, there's a place to tell that story. We have Sean D. Tucker's aerobatic airplane on display there. We have uh, an airplane that was uh, certified, uh, I believe, in the 50s. Could have that date wrong. Um, to both fly and be a car, the only certificated yeah, aero car. Yep. Aero car. And so it's an amphibian, right? And so yep. uh, it's just some very interesting things down there. But the out at Udvarhazi, that's the other location uh, that's out there at Dulles Airport. If you're, uh, uh, you know, a general aviation pilot, you could fly right in there to Dulles. It's not too expensive uh, if you're not flying a jet airplane or a turboprop. And even turboprops, not too, too bad, but the landing fees and the FBO fees are not, not too, too bad. And uh, the Udvarhazi Center is right there at the airport, at Dulles Airport. You'll need to take an Uber or get the FBO, give you a ride on over. There's a, actually a, a, a bus that goes between the main terminal and the museum. But it opened in 2003. We have, a, I think, a couple hundred aircraft there. And uh, it's another uh, fascinating place as well. And we have some very unique and very one-of-a-kind airplanes and uh, it's just a great time just a great time to volunteer and uh, spend time out there and you meet some fabulous people people that uh, some of, some of the, the favorite people I enjoy talking to and I've had a couple that say you know it's usually a, a wife or a girlfriend that says you know my boyfriend or husband drags me to these places and uh, you know I put up with it uh, and uh, but you know I come here because he likes doing it and so they become my goal. They become my goal to make this place interesting for them. And once in a while, I'm successful. And they will say, wow, this I, I didn't really understand what this was all about. And so it's uh, fun to run into those people as well. So no, it's a great, great place. And so I encourage people, if they have the chance to uh, volunteer at any museum, especially an aviation museum, uh, even if you're not an expert, uh, you can learn what you need to learn. It's just a great, great bunch, a great time. And I've got a tremendous uh, group of friends with my docent friends that uh, we connect. We all love aviation. And I, I will say, from as someone who has flown down there and gone to Uvarhazi, it's it it is not hard to fly into Dulles. Uh, uh, to be able to do that, you of course have to go through the the online course um, so that you're able to fly in in at the uh, outer part of uh, the restricted zone. Uh, but uh, it's just it's so great to be able to land there at the FBO and jump hop over and go see the museum and uh, I'll add to people if you've ever if, if you know Washington is an area that that is you're interested in being able to go and get certified uh, by uh, the Secret Service to go and fly to the the GA airports that are that are within the free zone you can combine all of it into one you can fly into Dulles you can go to Uvarhazi you can visit the the FISDO that you have to visit there in order to get your paperwork started, and 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 that's that we combined everything uh, in uh, in trips in order to go down there and and get our codes so that we can come and uh, and visit it. And I am looking forward to coming and seeing you, my friend, down there at some point again in the future and getting a personal tour of Uvarhazi. We'll do that. Absolutely. Well, Phil, thank you so much for taking time this evening to share your story, talk about the SR-71, the F-4, and, and so many other things. You really uh, continue to lead a, a spectacular life with uh, some wonderful stories, and uh, I look forward to having you back on the show sometime in the future. All right, great. Hey, have a good evening, Jeff. Absolutely. Thanks, Phil. All right. Bye. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. We'll be back next Tuesday, September 19th with Jason Shepard of M0A. If you've watched him on YouTube or taken some of his courses there at M0A, you know that he is a very, very exciting and inspirational teacher. And uh, uh, he is, will be here talking about new techniques and things that he's doing as part of all of his work over at M0A. And then on Tuesday, September 26, Army Black Hawk helicopter pilots Chris Reeves and Cole Hamilton will be here. If you've gone, if you were at AirVenture and you saw the Black Hawk demo that happened during the air show, 
These are the guys that were involved in that. Very, very cool stuff. And they'll tell you what's behind flying the Blackhawk and also flying these air shows, which I'll tell you from the information that they've shared with me is, is literally choreographed down to the second. It is amazing. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Until next time, thank you so much for everything that you do to support General Aviation, for helping us here at Social Flight do the same. And I wish you all blue skies. Thank you